Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world, the headline making science news that warrants a step back, and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. And welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that, and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm June Kim. And I'm Sam Marchetti. And today, we're going to get up to date on everything from skydiving salamanders to robot crabs in another discussion on the sidelines. So, June, do you ever go out in public with your parents and you're a little bit stressed because they're like slightly socially awkward? Yeah, no, I I get that. I've definitely felt that before. Yeah. See, my dad is like the extreme of that. We we get a little bit concerned sometimes because we just, you know, he says things occasionally and he's just trying to be friendly. My dad's a great mm-hmm. guy, um, but he says things occasionally and we're just kind of like, I wonder if he has any social awareness. <laughs> right. <laughs> sense of sense of, you know, kind of social awareness and social skills is something that is very important to us as people. And what scientists have been looking at this week is that sense of social awareness. Uh, not in humans, but in hamsters, because we always like to take it back a step and look at, right. you know, the simple model first. first. Yeah, right. Hamsters come first. That should be the, <laughs> the hashtag for this this study. Hamsters come first. So what they were looking at, um, it, it was something that they've been looking at for a while. So we know that there's a hormone called vasopressin um, and that hormone, uh, it, it really uh, has some correlation with social communication. And whether that's uh, bonding, cooperation, or like aggression and like fighting, you know? Hmm. So without that hormone, it's just less able to kind of modulate or at least display these kinds of social behaviors, you mean? That's what they thought, okay. right? So that, that was this study. They looked, at the, uh, the re- they looked at the receptor that vasopressin attaches to. And they just got rid of it. Um, they used a system called CRISPR-Cas9. Um, I'm sure I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, CRISPR-Cas9, for our listeners, it's a gene editing system. Um, and basically what we can do with it is we can knock out entire genes or we can add new genes. Um, we can effectively make genetically modified organisms. Um, and what they did in this study was they destroyed a gene that, uh, you know, helps create the receptor that uses vasopressin. So the expected result was, okay, if we take away the ability of the organism to use vasopressin, we're not, we're going to see less aggression and less social communication. We're going to see a lot less of these things, but that's the polar opposite of what happened. Um, Instead, what happened was that the hamsters that didn't have these receptors showed much higher levels of social communication. Um, Yeah. And then what was even more interesting, um, the differences in uh, aggressiveness between males and females were basically eliminated. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for example, like a male hamster would show, you know, uh, high levels of aggression towards a a same sex individual. Right. Yeah. That's interesting Um, because I like, you know, first of all, it's always interesting when your hypothesis is completely reversed and you do a study and then like the opposite of what you expected happens. But yeah, what, what, what did they have to say about like why potentially this happened well basically that right that was the conclusion that came out of this study and it was basically just uh we don't really get it (laughs) like we don't understand what's happening here (laughs) right but that's so important and this is why i really like this study because i think it leads into a really good discussion here um you know 
we don't understand this as well as we thought we did. And that is okay. Um, we are going to, you know, at, at different points, I think, hit roadblocks, even like the, the world of, you know, advanced scientific research. We're always hitting roadblocks. And these roadblocks are basically just results that don't agree with anything else that we think we know. Right. And I think it really raises the, um, it raises the flag on how important it is to be skeptical about, you know, your results. Um, or not not skeptical about your results, but skeptical about your, you know, your conclusions that you draw from a result, even at, you know, the the most advanced level of, of scientific research. Yeah. And and I honestly think it's kind of good to to kind of break this expectation that like I'm gonna do this study, here's my hypothesis, it's gonna be right. And instead, you know, we kind of get challenged every once in a while and we go, All right, so something we have no idea or didn't expect at all happened. Uh, let's maybe take a step back, think about where things went right, where things went wrong, like what else have we missed? And, you know, when we think about those kinds of things and, you know, what, especially that last question, what have we missed? We usually try to, or kind of get more of a bigger picture and, you know, that's always a good thing. Yeah. Which is super important, you know, and there's always this saying, I think, um, and I was talking about this with a couple of my friends the other day, we were reminiscing about our undergrad and our, you know, lab experiences in undergrad. And we were just laughing about this time that, you know, we we were doing this, we were doing a lab activity where we would have to uh, take a piece of copper, basically dissolve it and then get the copper back from it. Uh, and we got a 400 percent yield of copper, which was like, <laughs> Excellent. like it's impossible. Right. We got we yeah. somehow ended up with four times the copper that we started with. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just saying it was really funny because we still did really well on the lab because we could just explain it. Like the point isn't to be right. It's can you explain exactly what the data you collected and like why this happened, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I've done the exact opposite before too. Uh, when the goal was like to try and get like a uh, 100% yield, I've gotten like 5% yield before, right? So <laughs> it happens yeah. both ways. Yeah, so it's all it's all just about, you know, can we explain what we're actually seeing? And more importantly, if we can't explain it, can we think of a, a next step to try to explain it? Right. Exactly. And that's that's the world of science. And I think uh, I think that's an important message for for a lot of people, especially coming out of uh, coming out of the pandemic where we had all these conflicting messages about vaccines. First, they were 90 percent effective. Then they were like 70 percent effective. Um, and it just goes to show, you know, the, the continued uh, ever changing state of scientific research. Yeah, it's a work in progress. It's always science is always a work in progress, always more to find out and more findings to come. Absolutely. So completely shifting gears kind of to a little bit of a it's it's a mix of depressing and hopeful news. Uh, have you ever heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Yes, I believe I have. Uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a large garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific. Exactly. You've got to <laughs> just right on the nail. It is indeed a garbage patch in the Pacific. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's a huge pile of garbage in the in the Pacific Ocean. And it's actually a massive area. It's not just like one big garbage island. It's actually a couple of garbage patches. And they kind of like circulate debris, uh, you know, through the ocean currents. And there's tons of pollution from like fishing, like nets or something, but also just plastic pollution from you know land that gets there and it all accumulates and none of it's biodegradable which is why it accumulates like this so typically it's kind of hard to access this area there's been like there's obviously been studies or some kind of testing that's happened uh but very recently they've come across a very cool finding a long distance swimmer named ben leconte 
uh, embarked on a new world record breaking swim to the garbage patch. Like this is just a, like a swimmer, but in with his uh, crew that was just trying to make sure he was safe and everything. Some researchers went as well to take some samples. So that's how they got some science out of this very cool, like, you know, athletic endeavor as well. And so obviously they found a bunch of plastic as they could expect. But the interesting part is that they also found a lot of life that was growing within the patch and was kind of just, uh, I guess, finding ways to survive through the garbage. And a lot of this life are called Neustans. And that's the name given to living creatures that live right on the surface film of water. So either right on top of it or right below it. So think about like those water striders that kind of just glide across the water surface uh, or the surface tension. Those, those are what Neustans are. So, <clears throat> uh, so, you know, the typical animal like or, or marine life like fish or, or, or whales in the area are, are lesser because the plastic pollution is too much for them. Uh, but there are more Neustan kinds of animals. So snails, jellyfish. And a, a real marine animal name called Man O War. I did not know this existed, but that's a real marine animal. And also blue sea dragons. A bunch of these kinds of animals were found living just like within and like among the plastic. And this is the craziest part. They actually saw a positive correlation of Neustan living in areas, it, the more plastic there was, which is very odd. So again, the plastic kills other forms of life, but some resiliency creatures call it home. I guess that does kind of make sense. You know, when you think about it, like if they live on the surface film of the water, I suppose it's, you know, logical that when you put floating, floating crap in there, uh, they can <laughs> just kind of grab onto it and it helps them to, to take a little break from swimming around, right? Um, yeah. Which is, that's pretty cool. Um, although I still think we should probably clean up the garbage, but interesting that life yes. can still form there. Yes, and, and that was actually the, one of the biggest take-home messages because it was just... We need to eliminate the garbage before it reaches the water. Like that's number one, because what they realized is if you try and clean up the garbage now, it's too late. Because if you take like a huge net to clean up the plastic, you will inevitably also pick up tons and tons of marine life with it. So, you know, since they're living in integrated with the plastic, it's too late to clean it up now. We need to make sure we eliminate the plastic before it gets into the ocean. So that was the big take home message they saw. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that would, you know, completely alter the uh, the marine ecosystem if you tried to clean it up with the organisms living on it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is, you know, obviously terrible. So good message. Clean up the uh, clean up the plastic. So the the next thing I want to talk about with you today, June, um, memory. Yes. What's your favorite memory? Wow, that's a very <laughs> hard question. A, a lot, lots of favorite memories. I mean, uh, I went to Hawaii with my family. I, I think that's a pretty fond memory of mine. Okay, so now think about that memory and tell me more about that. Like, tell what's something that you know um, you did right before, or right after you went to Hawaii. Right before, or right after. Uh, <laughs> we had a layover flight in Denver. I remember that. <laughs> okay, exactly right. But and you can remember this link between Hawaii and a layover in Denver, right? That's correct. Yeah. So what scientists have been doing uh, recently is they've been looking at how the brain links memories. Okay. Um, and they've kind of found that uh, there's a correlation between this uh, specific receptor. We're coming back to the, the topic of receptors. Um, it, and receptors are just kind of things on the cells that will, you know, uh, attach to specific molecules and cause some kind of a result on the inside. Uh, and what they found, these scientists, um, 
is that there's a gene called CCR5 that uh, it makes the CCR5 receptor. Um, and there is some uh, research that kind of supported the idea that uh, CCR5 expressions, so when you have more of these receptors, you have poor memory recall um, and you can't link um, you can link memories as well. So what the scientists in this study did, um, they found a really central mechanism uh, with the ability of mice to link memories of two different uh, cages. So what they found was that when they had higher CCR5 expression, when they boosted that gene expression um, in middle-aged mice, uh, the animals forgot the connection between the two cages. They, they couldn't remember the same things. Um, and when they took away the CCR5 genes, the mice had memories they could link that normal mice couldn't. Oh, wow. So there's a pretty strong correlation there between the expression of this one receptor and the, um, the ability to recall and link memories. Interesting. So CCR5 is almost inhibiting the ability to make these connections. Yeah. And then here's where it gets interesting. Take one guess what, CCR, what else the CCR5 receptor is used for. CCR5 receptor. Mm, I, I want to just guess something uh, related to like hormones or regulating some kind of hormonal pathway. You're right in the sense that it is something we've studied. It's HIV. Um, oh. So it's actually a receptor that HIV uses to infect a brain cell and cause memory loss in AIDS patients. Um, oh, and luckily, this is the really cool part. Um, there is already a drug called Maraviroc. I definitely said that wrong, but Mara Virok. <laughs> um, and that, uh, that drug already attacks that receptor. Um, so we could, in theory, use this drug to reduce CCR5 activity um, and maybe improve uh, memory loss and see if this could perhaps be an early intervention drug for Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Well, and, and obviously it wouldn't work this simply. There's probably other side effects, but it kind of makes me wonder, could we just completely get rid of CCR5 receptors and then maybe have better memory? You know, like, um, honestly, if, if that's like, an actual solution. Yeah, I, I definitely feel you with that idea. But then I keep thinking about that first article that we talked about, right? Um, or one of the last no. two that we talked about, <laughs> yes. right? But we just, we don't know everything. We didn't know about the, uh, you know, the total social system and how vasopressin works in mice mm -hmm. uh, or in hamsters. We didn't know about the, the living organisms living on top of the Great Pacific Garbage right, Patch, you know? Right, What else could go wrong? <laughs> right. So on one hand, I'm very much like, yeah, we should just get rid of this thing. Clearly, it's, everything we know about it is that it just causes bad things. We don't need mm -hmm. this receptor. But we might need this receptor maybe it's like really critical for something else like we don't know yep i believe that totally <laughs> yeah but anyway it's an interesting finding especially interesting that we have not only a link between memory loss and like a target but we already have a drug that impacts yeah. that target um it's just a matter of doing a little bit more research and seeing if that's effective in humans yeah and and i think one of the very interesting things is just like one thing in the human body or or any animal does so many other things, right? Like you just told me memory and HIV, right? Like those things are very, obviously they are linked in multiple ways, but they are also very separate things at the same time. So very cool how one gene, one, one very small part of your biology can do such vastly different things as well. Yeah. So uh, in the film Star Wars, are you a fan of Star Wars, Sam? 
I am a fan of Star Wars. I can't say I'm as big of a fan of all like the new stuff that they're putting out. I just mm-hmm. I got bored of like the second season of Mandalorian. Um, okay. But <laughs> I do like the old Star Wars. Yeah. So we'll, let's go all the way back to the first original Star Wars A New Hope. And, uh, you know, on Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru's farm. So that's, that's the farm where uh, Luke Skywalker is raised. Uh, on Tatooine, it's, it's a desert planet, right? And they have a bunch of vaporizers and they call it a moisture farm. Uh, and these moisture farms try to capture water. You remember this part of the movie, right? I do. I do remember the moisture farms. <clears throat> When when you were younger, did you ever wonder how that worked? Like, because when I heard the term moisture farm when I first saw that movie, I had no idea what that meant. I'm not gonna lie to you, June. Even when I was younger, I took everything in that movie with a grain of salt. I saw the moisture farms, <laughs> I saw the lightsabers, people using the force, and I was just like, oh, okay, this is fake, but it's cool, so we're just gonna roll with it. Exactly. Well, uh, no real lightsabers yet, uh, no force yet, uh, but moisture farms, <laughs> I guess that's probably the, the least cool of the three, but moisture farms, a reality that we can see in our own world now. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So basically, the and this is kind of the preamble for why this is such an important technology. Uh, one third of the Earth's population live on dry lands. And what dry lands mean, it's basically an area considered to have water scarcity. And with climate change getting worse too, there are more and more droughts, more and more land is becoming dry land, and water is harder to get to come by simply. So what researchers have come by is creating a gel film, so not one of those weird vaporizer machines in Star Wars, but a gel film, and this is able to capture moisture from arid desert air, even if it's super, super dry, and turn it into drinkable water. And they have a pretty good like percentage. So even with about 15% relative humidity or, or very, very low humidity, uh, like, you know, dry air, you can create six liters of water every day. And if it's bumped up to 30% relative humidity, you get 13 liters of water every day. And the researchers are very, very optimistic that that um, with some modifications and with some, you know, optimization that they can actually make way, way, way more water. And the best part is you can actually make this at home. You need to have all the materials. Most of the materials are quite cheap. Uh, they have things like cellulose and they have a common kitchen ingredient called konjac gum, which is like a preservative that you can find even in like ice cream or cake. Uh, obviously no one has like, ah, here's my, you know, tub of konjac gum. Very uh, handy. But like <laughs> if you were able to get all of these parts uh, in, in like the, the pure ingredient form, you could technically make it at home. It's not actually that in, in that hard of a process where you like need a lab and you need all this equipment. Uh, and since the gel is very moldable into any shape, uh, it's very, very convenient to use. So the, the best part that these research, researchers are saying is that like anyone who is in these very arid areas or dry areas where there's droughts or just not a lot of water, they could be sent like a, like a package with all these parts and they could just prepare it and make it at home to start collecting water from you know moisture in the air. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, especially because I think there's there's a lot of concern uh, these. I mean, I was going to say these days, but I guess there's a lot of concern recently with, um, you know, with climate change advancing about about droughts um, and places being uh, inaccessible and not having access to clean water, uh, even places that, you know, currently do. Uh, and that's not even counting all the places in the world that currently don't have access right. to clean water. Um, so this is a definitely a huge finding and uh, definitely something that's going to solve a lot of problems. Yeah. And, and there's one very interesting fact. 
but this is research actually funded by the Department of Defense. So in other words, the United States Army actually funded this. And the reason why they wanted to fund this was because they were looking for a way to provide soldiers with drinking water in very dry areas. So that kind of came out of nowhere for me. I had no idea that, you know, the Department of Defense would fund this. But, you know, given that explanation, it does actually make sense. I think I have two thoughts on that. First thing, I think that's actually super logical. Uh, the Department of Defense funds a lot of scientific projects yeah. that seem, <laughs> seemingly have nothing to do with defense. The other thing, I thought you were going to say the Department of Defense is funding it because they want to reduce the risk of uh, water wars. So I don't know if you've heard mm -hmm. of this idea, but uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of scholars out there and people who study uh, economics and sociology and like the political state of the world. Um, not Jaden Smith, but you know other people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they've they've kind of been saying for a while that the next wars are going to be uh, started over access to clean water um, mm, because we're starting. Sense. Yeah, because we're starting to run low on it and we're not using it in a sustainable way. So instead of wars over oil, we're going to start having wars over water. So I thought you were going to say the Department of Defense is funding that in case that happens or to try to prevent that from happening. Honestly, that's probably an auxiliary reason they have. Yeah, it, it might be. But it, it is also, um, you know, it's interesting. They're still looking at, uh, you know, solutions for something like getting water to soldiers uh, in dry areas. That feels like an issue that we should have solved 70 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. And, it, you know, it's just like a like a it's just like a small issue that that they obviously water is a big issue. But, you know, soldiers typically have some kind of access to water because of just the massive funding of the Department of Defense. But, you know, the fact that it's led to something as cool as this, you know, I think that's pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. So let's um, let's talk more about technology. I have two words for you. Mm -hmm. Robot crabs. I'm unbelievably excited. <laughs> okay, you you sound unbelievably excited. I actually <laughs> am unbelievably excited. For anyone who knows me, um, I have an obsession with uh, well, not really an obsession, but I do like I like Crab Rave. It's this old video that uh, this guy his username is Noise Storm. He put on uh, on YouTube, and it's just a bunch of CGI crabs dancing to like EDM music. And it's amazing. It's my favorite thing. Anyway, so I'm very excited about this. This uh, is not really a finding. It's a development. It's an invention. Um, so engineers at Northwestern University have made the smallest ever remote controlled walking robot. Um, and it is in the form of a tiny little peaky toe crab, uh, which right. is incredible. <laughs> um, so you could... Think about, I mean, you probably often think about robots like a lot more complex, right? Like when, when I say robot, what's the first thing that you think of? I, I think of like the humanoid, you know, metal robot with tons of wires and, you know, a bunch of buttons, you know, that kind of that kind of traditional robot you might see in the movies. Yeah, yeah. So like iRobot, right? You know, something yeah, super advanced. <laughs> so these robots, um, and they're still very, um, what's wrong for, they're still very uh, prototype stage. Um, but they are very small. They are half a millimeter uh, large, right? So they are within a millimeter. Um, and they it's thought that they could help to do tasks eventually uh, in really confined spaces. For now, all they can really do is uh, walk. They can move. They can kind of uh, twist. They can jump. So they can move their bodies in uh, a few different ways. Um, and they can walk with an average speed of about half a body length per second. Um, so you can kind of think about them just kind of... It, there is a video and I'll link the video in the show notes, but 
um, they, they just kind of like rumble and move along. <laughs> and the way that they do this is actually completely um, without any kind of hydraulics or electronics. Oh, so how does it move then? The same way that it's made. Um, so the way that it's made is that it uses um, it, it uses a shape memory alloy material is what it's called. Okay. So basically what that means is you have basically a piece of metal that has a remembered shape, so to speak. So it has a shape that it like defaults to when it's heated up. Um, okay. So we could flatten it out and then heat it up and it would pop back into that shape. Um, and the researchers actually said this was inspired by like kids pop up books. Um, oh, wow. So the way that they made these was they printed um, they yeah, they kind of printed out of this metal um, the general structure of the little crab shaped robots and that's 2d it's just flat and then they put it onto uh kind of a rubberized stretchy slightly stretched um rubber surface right and then to let the crab be made they just kind of let go of the rubber surface and let it um kind of restrict itself a little bit you know go back to its resting state and it pulls all the crab's legs together and forces the crab body up oh i see i, I gotta ask the crabs kind of walk sideways like regular crabs do Yes, yes, yeah. they do. As, as they should. As they should. As they should. Um, so, so to make uh, to make these crabs move, what they do is they actually use um, lasers, and they just kind of scan the crab from left to right or right to left, um, and it'll actually make it move in the opposite direction. So, if you scan the crab with a laser from right to left, um, it'll make the crab move uh, left to right, and vice versa, right? Um, but the way this works is when the laser hits. Um, the little bits of the crab when it hits little legs, uh, it actually causes them to deform a very slight amount and just kind of bend outwards. And then as soon as the laser uh, is off it, because the crabs are so small, they cool really quickly. So they cool back down and then they return to that shape that they were in before. Um, oh. Yeah, so that's that's kind of how it works. They just kind of deform the legs a little bit at a time and then let them cool back down again and kind of stretch, compress, stretch, compress. And you get a little vibrating motion of the crab moving. Uh, side to side so obviously this is very uh, preliminary but in the future they're hoping they can use the same idea to make these crabs able to kind of do really uh, precise and specific tasks in really small spaces hmm. and, and one day sam i'm sure they will be able to recreate the crab rape video with enough crabs that they create this way right <laughs> i really hope so but the thing that i love the most is that there's no reason that it had to be a crab it was just <laughs> the students in the lab who were like, we want crabs. Like we want crabs are cool. And we want to see like little robot crabs walking sideways. So these students are exactly like me. They just know yeah. a lot more than me about <laughs> robotics. Um, yeah, but that's the story. Tiny robot crabs, smallest crabs in the world. That's just another win for crabs. <laughs> another win for crabs. You know what I think is really awesome too is, you know, you started off with oh, this, the, the smallest robot crab. And I, I thought that was cool. And then you told me about this memory, like shape memorizing, like metal. And then you talked about lasers. So like, there's actually a lot involved in this project. And, you know, it's, it's cool to see all these technologies coming together to, you know, provide one larger finding or one larger research project. I think that's quite cool. Yeah, absolutely. So sticking with uh, animals, but uh, the animal I've selected is alive and flying. Uh, there are skydiving salamanders that exist in the largest trees in the world, uh, the redwoods in California. And what's very unique about these salamanders are that they are regular salamanders. So, for example, a regular squirrel doesn't really glide around, but a flying squirrel 
does, right? And, you know, flying squirrels, insects, and even some frogs. There's frogs called gliding frogs, and they're also able to maneuver themselves in midair to transport themselves. But they found that some uh, salamanders that live at the top of the tallest trees in the world, so they are climbing a lot because they are very small. Like salamanders, like the ones we were talking about today, are about 5 to 10 centimeters. So imagine a small little salamander climbing the tallest tree in the world, right? It, it takes them a while. But what they do, which is very interesting, is that they've actually evolutionarily gained the trait of maneuvering themselves while falling. And, you know, what they think is that these salamanders are climbing these trees and just falling and then maybe falling to their deaths. Uh, but the ones who've been able to really like use their tail to try to guide themselves or, or really um, maneuver while falling to correctly position themselves to the next tree or something like that, those were the ones who were able to survive. And it's actually just an evolutionarily tra evolutionary trait, which is very cool. And they're so talented at this, in fact, that they can flip themselves over with ease if they're upside down. And they can just navigate horizontally with their tail very, very easily to just, you know, go to whatever tree they'd like to. And, um, you know, this, this skill or talent came with no, like, bodily changes. Like I said, like, you know, flying squirrels kind of have those flaps that they use under their arms. But these salamanders look like regular salamanders. And they're called the wandering salamander, I guess, because they wander from tree to tree. But, yeah, their falling is fully intentional and controlled. And they just do it like behaviorally this is not like a new body part or or anything that they've developed this is just a behavioral evolution that they've kind of acquired and uh the researchers kind of joked that you know it's it's a long way up for these small salamanders to the top of the trees so they have learned to use the gravity elevator down if they need to move to another tree uh which makes sense instead of uh, expending more energy so yeah flying not not literally flying but at least gliding salamanders that is really cool. And honestly, like the first thing I was going to ask you is going to be, so did they like, you know, develop some kind of wings or something? Um, but I guess <laughs> not. I think, you know, eventually, I guess we will see salamanders with wings if if they keep, you know, needing to move from tree to tree, right? That's just mm -hmm. how evolution works. Eventually there's, you know, a random mutation that causes something beneficial. And then when that helps, you see it more and more in the population. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I look forward to seeing salamanders with wings, but that's pretty awesome that they can just, you know, move around behaviorally with no physical adaptation. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is that uh, there are several, several species of salamander that live in the redwoods of California, and half of them are perfectly happy chilling on the ground. Like, they, they have no interest in climbing these trees, and the other half of them love to climb the trees and go very, very high up, and obviously the ones that climb, those are the ones who um, have this evolutionary trait. But, you know, there's actually tons of salamanders in the same area that don't have this trait whatsoever. They are just, like, yes, they'll climb trees, but not all the way to the top. And, and they just stay in the lower sections of the forest. So there's, like, the evolutionary traits that are, that are developed, uh, you know, not, not all salamanders do this. It's just some that have decided to do this. That's, yeah, that's really cool. So, you know, I guess the reason behind this trait developing could be to avoid other salamanders. That's, <laughs> that also that's, they just, could be true. They just don't want to compete with the other salamanders. Um, that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably, you know, the, the forest is a big place. And, you know, if, if you can find resources elsewhere, you know, why not try? And I and I think the other thing with this is, and, and specifically with the researchers trying to look at this is, <clears throat> well, first of all, I didn't even know gliding frogs existed, but it seems like tons and tons of animals um, 
you know, really have these evolutionary changes to do anything to survive. And even if it means skydiving without a parachute, almost. And I think that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me, Sam. Love to hear your stories. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about plastic pollution or gene editing or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at sci for everyone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.